Blog Talk Radio. Hello, we are talking about space this episode of the AJ Bruno Show. I'm joined by Amy Shira Title. She's a spaceflight historian and popular science writer with a near encyclopedic knowledge on this absolutely fascinating subject. We should have her on here in just a second. We'll be talking about various aspects of space history, um, her interest in it, as well as going back to the space race, uh, going through some of that and, and seeing where we stand both today and, and, of course, looking forward to the future as well. So there should be quite a bit we have to discuss, and uh, we should do that shortly. Um, we're switching gears a bit today. And in the meantime, please, if you haven't done so already, if you're listening, go to our Twitter page. It's at Reagan Worldwide, at Reagan Worldwide. You can follow there, see all the interesting things that are posted, whether it's related to the show or, or other interesting subjects. Uh, be sure to do that. Uh, that's our main outlet for getting the message out there, and it's uh, one that, I hope you look into it more. So we should have her on here any second, and uh, we will get started very shortly. And we do right now. Okay, so let's get the show started. Hello, Amy. Uh, glad to have you here. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How are you? All right. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, so to start with. You've been a self-proclaimed space historian in grade school. How did you go from that to turning into a full-fledged space historian? Uh, awkwardly. <laughs> um, no, it's just, uh, I mean, I, I first read about the moon landing when I was seven, and I kind of fell in love with how interesting and how crazy it was. And, um, you know, the more the more I read about it, the crazier it became. And I finally... Uh, had some good guidance from good uh, professors that told me, you know, well, you can actually study this history because you're doing a history of science degree. So I started to figure out that I could actually do like an academic look at the history that I was fascinated by. And that just kind of opened up a whole new world for me to, to explore it. And I did the undergrad and the master's and decided that I want to write for everybody, not just an advisory committee. (laughs) And gradually just took, you know, I took everything that I know. I mean, I, I've always joke, but not really, that I've done more research probably this year than I ever did in my academic career. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've taken the exact same approach as academia and just have more fun with it now. <laughs> sure. So I, I know you looked up to Werner von Braun as a personal hero. Are there any others that really stand out to you? And what about those people make you admire them most? Uh, the standout for me, which anyone who has followed my Instagram or my YouTube knows, uh, would be Pete Conrad, <laughs> because I named my cat Pete Conrad, which is not weird. Um, <laughs> Pete was the uh, real Pete Conrad, not my cat, uh, was the commander of Apollo 12. And his his memoir, or his uh, what was the posthumous memoir, so his uh, biography, uh, co-written by his, his widower, um, just captures this 
like amazing energy of a person who he was dyslexic and overcame this learning disorder to then go to Princeton because he really wanted to fly with the Navy um, and made that work and just managed to do everything with a sense of humor. So he was, and his motto was, if you can't be good, be colorful. And he was five foot six and a half, damn it, as he always, and I'm four foot 11. So I, I always loved this, this guy who didn't, you know, didn't just fall into the right place. He worked really hard to get it, and he did it all with a sense of humor. And if you uh, read about that mission, these guys had fun going to the moon, and you get the sense that it's like just three three good friends having the time of their life. And uh, that that was always kind of exciting to me because it was the most human part of the moon landing that I could access as a, as a kid. And I, I still I still love that that crew and that flight, and specifically Pete Conrad. No, that was a definitely a great crew, and it's especially sad because the other two members they you know passed away recently. So I think yeah. that's a really great loss for the whole community. Yeah, I did get to meet both Dick Gordon and Albine, which was pretty incredible, and yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal guys, and very sad to have lost them recently. Mm-hmm. Do you have any interesting memories you can share about meeting either of them? Um. I did have a, an interesting conversation that I, I didn't actually have directly with LB, and this is sort of weird, but I was, um, you know, when you go to these signing events, you're sort of in line to meet them and, and chat with them for a minute, and you can accost them at a cocktail party, but that feels kind of intrusive. Um, so I was, I was hanging out with, a, with a, you know, another young guy waiting to meet Albine, and this guy is a, an animator. And he goes out to Albine and he's showing him some of his work. And Albine starts talking to him about, like, how he approaches his art. And he's talking about how he always makes sure that if he's doing the lunar module, he draws it perfectly. He makes sure it's, you know, completely accurate, everything. And then over top of that takes his artistic license and adds, you know, the the depth of color and texture and all those things that make it from a technical drawing into a piece of art. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. And I know it wasn't said to me directly, but I realized that's, that's basically what popular science writing is. You know, you're not making anything up over top of fact. But every time I write something that's super technical, just write and get the details in first and make sure all that's in. And then you can start building out the scene with all of the little extra details. And that's strangely one of the, the more personal-ish, because <laughs> I was sort of <laughs> hovering, um, Albine moments that kind of stood out to me is this really interesting lesson on creating art from an astronaut. Great. Makes sense. So to get into more of the historical aspects of it, uh, Mercury and Gemini laid the groundwork for Apollo later on, but they don't get the same level of historical fanfare. How did those help set up the success of Apollo in ways that were most critical? Yeah, Apollo wouldn't have happened without those two programs, which is why I think it's wild that they don't get some recognition. Um, You know, what's so exciting to me about that era and remains that exciting is that no one really knew what they were doing, so everything was figuring something out for the first time. So with Mercury, it's literally figuring out, can you put a man into space? Okay, well, now he's there. Can he swallow food in space? Like every, like, kneeling detail of human survival had to be figured out and the basics were done in Mercury. And then Gemini was where it got really, really fun. And this is like, I, I always feel like Gemini is the overlooked middle child of the space age because it's so cool and no one talks about it, but 
literally every Gemini mission did something to advance NASA's understanding when going to the moon. So things like, can you survive for two weeks in space? Because that's how long it takes to go to the moon. Well, let's test out the fuel cells. Can you, uh, can you do uh, EVAs? Can you actually, you know, we need to get outside and walk on the moon's surface. So let's try it in Earth orbit where it's mildly safer. Can you connect two spacecraft? Because that's what's going to happen in, in lunar orbit. Like every single piece of the lunar puzzle was done on Gemini before Apollo, and just no one talk, no one talks about that. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't get the attention it should. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the Soviets were winning the Cold War uh, with the first satellite and man in orbit, but the U.S. topped that by going to the moon, and that basically meant game over. Why was that the end point, and how important do you think this ultimately was? Um, I wouldn't say that Apollo is uh, you know, Apollo 11, the moon landing was actually kind of the, the end point. It's sort of symbolically hitting the finish line. But if you start digging into the history a little bit more, you see that the end point actually happened around ni- late 1955, early 1956, when Sergei Korolev died. Korolev is a very little known figure, um, you know, no, known to the deep nerd, but not, not to people who are sort of casual observers. He was sort of the, the Soviet equivalent to von Braun, and he was, he was called the chief designer, and he was really the one that orchestrated everything. And he had the vision. Like, he snuck Sputnik's launch in as, like, a, a minor thing as part of a missile program such that no one had to okay it so that he just magically had satellites ready to go. Like, he was clever, and he was smart, and he got stuff done. Um, when he, he died in early 1966, that marked kind of when the Soviets started lagging. Because the structure of the Soviet space program was such that without leadership in that key uh, design bureau, it just didn't, wasn't able to keep pace. So if you really look at it, the, the Soviets were doing firsts of everything up until about 1965 when Alexei Leonov became the first man to walk in space. But then Ed White doubled his time record, and then NASA started racking up all of the firsts and really took over. Um, so that's... So I, I, w- I would argue that actually the, the, the space race was over but in name by 1966. And then if you, mm-hmm. if you do kind of want to extend it the other direction, I think you would say that it probably didn't formally end. I mean, there's this beautiful symbolism of the Apollo-Soyuz mission in 1975 where you have the picture of Tom Stafford and uh, Alexei Leonov, the commanders of the two sides, shaking hands in space and sort of, promoting cooperation finally. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's two different, arguably two different endpoints, neither of which are really the moon landing. It was sort of the moon landing, I think, at that point became more like, well, we said we were going to do this, so we should probably do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're already that deep into it, I guess, at that point, once we'll finish it off. So, I mean, um, all, all the, the biggest spending was in the mid, mid-60s, mid and, you know, you can't, you can't easily back out of that one. No, no. And they spent so much more in terms of, you know, relative to the budget then than they do now. So I can just imagine if they kept that spending up, what we would have done by now. And uh, it would be nice. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was probably an unrealistic amount of spending for, for anything. I mean, I, I, I haven't looked at the numbers uh, in great detail in a while. So off, but off the top of my head, it's, you know. I can't remember how much of the the budget goes to military, but it's you know NASA's a fraction of a fraction at this yeah. point, and it used to be a fraction. So it's always been, even at its peak, it was you know not what the the 
government currently spends on, you know, air conditioning for the military or something. There, there's no. some weird oh, number no. like that that puts it in insane perspective and really makes you understand how little funding the space agency actually gets. Yeah, that's a shame. So what are some of the most interesting, maybe obscure chapters of the history of space flight that you don't think get the attention or notoriety they probably deserve? Um, there's a lot. <laughs> I think, I mean... <laughs> Not not to not to be repetitive, but like the Gemini program as a whole, I think is this this big chunk of the history that just doesn't get the attention that it should get because it really was instrumental and and fascinating and all you know awesome and crazy and weird. Um, yeah, but there's there's a lot of like side stories that don't get attention, which is one thing I try to bring out in in my work. Um, like like the the obscure different types of landing systems engineers investigated in the 60s and all these these programs and these little technologies that didn't get off the ground because they just couldn't develop fast enough to keep pace with Apollo. I mean Apollo was really the the easiest way to do something big in the shortest time frame. And if if things like a a paraglider landing system for Gemini, which the Regalo wing is my one of my favorite technologies, if that couldn't develop in time to keep pace with Apollo, then it got, it got the ax. And a lot of that happened to a lot of really interesting development. Hmm. Sure. So probably my favorite astronaut from that era was John Glenn, who um, I think he's probably at the top of a lot of people's list. And uh, it was especially yep. hard, you know, we've lost so many great astronauts, but when he died a year and a half ago, I think that was um, you know, really, really something that affected a lot of people. So I saw a piece you wrote about him years ago that I thought was really great. Um, what was it about making that first orbit around the Earth and the man himself that you think meant so much to so many people all these years later? I think, I mean, most people, you ask the average person to name an astronaut, and they'll give you two. They'll give you John Glenn and Neil Armstrong, and that's because they did the things that are most visible and are most discussed and remembered in sort of the history of space. Um, and for, for Glenn, I mean, no one remembers that Al Shepard went up first and no one remembers Gus Grissom, but, um, you know, for Glenn being the first to ride the rocket into orbit when it didn't have the highest uh, reliability rating. And um, it was, that was the moment when we didn't quite match. The, we didn't quite beat the Soviets, but we're getting closer to matching them. You know, they, they'd done day long missions with Garam and Titov at that point, but no, now now we were starting to level the playing field. Now things are starting to even out. We can actually see how we could actually become the technologically dominant nation. So Glenn really stood for that. But there was also the fact that he was just kind of the perfect astronaut that America in the 19, what, 1959 when he was selected, he was kind of just that, that perfect American dream man with the wife and two kids and dog. I mean, like, I actually don't know if he had a dog. I can't remember if that was a thing or not. But, um, you know, he, he basically, like, stepped out of a Norman Rockwell painting into American hero mode and, like, did it. There was, he, he was just exactly what America needed in that role at the time. And, yeah. No, no it, he was it, great. You know, that was a breed of astronaut that you don't really, America doesn't, Things, you know, things have, have changed to where we want more the Elon Musk bravado type as opposed to the yeah. the quiet family man type. But he just he embodied what was so prevalent in America before things got really rough in the 60s. Oh, no, no, I preferred that myself. Um, mm. Well, speaking of, since you mentioned uh, the dog, I actually learned recently that apparently the Russians sent up 
uh, a lot of dogs, and some of them with the intention that they were never going to return alive. Uh, yeah. Was NASA doing anything like that, or was, you know, why did Russia, you think, uh, pursued that course? Yeah, uh, both. I mean, both nations did um, did animal testing. It was. I, I don't know about the history of PETA, but um, I'm sure animal rights groups were maybe a little bit less active in the 50s. Um, but this is going back to like the 30s and 40s that they were uh, scientists were using animals as human analogs to understand the biological elements of spaceflight. Um, America didn't kill things nearly as much or as deliberately as the Soviets. So like like a Sputnik 2 launch on November 3rd. Uh, 1957 she was never intending she was never supposed to come back and she died on her way up um, there were dogs Belka and Selka that did make it back alive but America launched a lot of chimps um, Ham and Enoch are the two that usually spring to mind they, they were brought back safely and they were designed to come back safely and test the life support system and the general functionality of the Mercury spacecraft so it was it was a thing that happens. I mean, we still test on animals because it's ever so slightly more humane than testing on humans. So yeah, it, it was a thing that that did happen on both sides. Right. right. So uh, there were 135 total space shuttle launches with two fatal accidents. Uh, those ultimately aren't exactly yeah. the best odds. Uh, what's your opinion of the space shuttle and um, what sort of vehicle do you think would be best as a mainstay for the next generation to improve on that? <laughs> oh, anybody who who knows me knows my thoughts on the shuttle. Um, <laughs> the, the shuttle, the shuttle was a bit of a, a camel, I think. Um, it did a lot of great things. I mean, shuttle gave us, you know, missions. It gave us Hubble. It did a lot for our understanding of how humans work in space. It helped develop and build the ISS. All of this is great, but did it need to be that big? Probably not. <laughs> um, it also massively under-delivered. You know, the, the original proposal was to have the shuttle um, turn around. I think there was supposed to be functionality at Kennedy was such that they could, there could be two active missions in space supported with a third either just back or getting ready to launch. And there was supposed to be around 50 flights a year. So in the 30-year lifetime, that should have been about 1,500 instead of the 135 we got. Um, so it kind of failed to deliver on the promise. And I think in a lot of ways, for all the good, it was also this period of space NASCAR um, without really having the functionality to do anything else because the shuttle couldn't go to the moon. The shuttle couldn't go anywhere else. And that vehicle is very much purpose-built for low-Earth orbit missions, which is great because we need that. But... We, I think, I think there would need to be like a dual approach for longevity in space because, like, the vehicle that goes to the moon and lands there can't be the same thing that lands on Earth and can't be the same thing that lands on Mars. They all have different atmospheres and different gravities and different considerations. Maybe some brilliant engineer can build that landing system. I don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but it would make sense to me to have something that's like modular. Um, and I don't know what that looks like, whether it's like a smaller shuttle that doesn't have the world's biggest payload bay <coughs> um, or, you know, something that that is capable of doing the, the runway landing for reusability and quick turnaround, but has, you know, can can launch with a capsule element that can go to other planets or something. I mean, it's I don't think we've quite dialed in on exactly what the perfect spacecraft is, and I think that might just because we don't really know what we're doing with it yet. It's hard to 
Uh, I mean, this is the the problem with the shuttle too. It was built. The, the, the proposal was for a space station and a shuttle to get astronauts to and from the station, but only the shuttle was okay. So it was a shuttle built without a thing to do, um, which just makes me think of the escalator to nowhere in The Simpsons. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't really know what the ideal arrangement should be, but I, I think we sort of need, kind of need both, like a little shuttle for easy orbit missions and then a capsule thing that can be tweaked for different environments. Yeah. Now the, uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> right. Now, I mean, there's things I like about the shuttle too, but just the amount of money it costs for each launch, it's just not, doesn't make sense to do something like that going forward. So, I mean, um, yeah, un- unfortunately it was supposed to be much cheaper with that many launches. It would have been dirt cheap to go into space, but yeah. It didn't. It didn't quite work out as well as people had hoped. So, yeah. No, no. But um, it did help build the International Space Station, of course. And uh, now, recently, there's been a yeah. lot of international cooperation with that. But we're focused more still on staying in near Earth orbit. Uh, what do you think the most important accomplishment from that has been? And and what do you think of that shift in focus in the you know, past years? Um, I mean, I think the the most important thing with all with the sort of homesteading space, as it were, um, which I believe is actually a book title that Skylab. <laughs> um, I, I think it it's taught us a lot about what we need to do to live off the Earth, which is super important because we do have this obsession with going to Mars and colonizing it and all that. Um, but if we're going to do that, we have to know what we're dealing with and how to deal with it. And the only way to do that is to figure out how we can grow plants in space to have food because we can't bring it all with us. So learning how to do that and playing with that technology, that's a huge advance. Um, you know, dealing with other, other radiation things, that's a huge problem. And any, any kind of testing to develop new ways of protection or just test new things is, is hugely important. So mm-hmm. I, I really like Hello? helping us understand. Hello? Oh, yes. Can you still hear yeah, me? Lost you for a second. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, I think I mean the the most important thing that's come with the ISS program is really just understanding more about how humans can actually survive in space because it's you know going going to the moon and just kind of going on a low residue diet so you don't have to use a bathroom for two weeks is fine for two weeks but you can't do that for a month long mission to another planet. So we really need to understand more about the environment and how we live in it, and that's that's been hugely important. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, you mentioned Mars, and yesterday NASA just had a, an announcement about finding organic molecules in the, in the rocks there in the ancient lake bed. What was your reaction to those findings? I'm not going to lie. I was super busy with other work yesterday that I haven't even had a chance to dig in and see what they found. Because one thing I, I always see those headlines and a couple people texted it to me. I take those headlines with a little bit of a grain of salt before I have a chance to actually read and see what is going on. Um, Because how many times have we seen headlines about discovering water on Mars when really what they discovered is rock formations that suggest evidence of past water on Mars, maybe. So (laughs) seeing, seeing the headline and seeing that sort of like it get picked up by the media is always like, let's backtrack. And also, also let's see what other um, 
previous discoveries they're building on because this might be something that like a, a lot of these things I think need so much context to really understand why they're so significant and that usually is missing when people get excited about big news from Mars. Um, so yeah, I actually I just haven't had a chance to go into it. I've I've been sort of completely sidetracked with other stuff all of no. yesterday. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, they do yeah, I don't. Lot, I don't actively yeah. work as a journalist anymore, so I don't follow the news on a no. you know minute by minute basis as much as I should. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, I think they said something in the past before about finding like evidence that there's definitely salt water and not fresh water. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, because that's you know that's again another headline where people are like, "There's a salt water. There's an ocean on Mars." It's like, no, there's. The, the chemical signature that salt water at one point flowed there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I know that NASA's mission was originally primarily political in nature, but, um, you know, in the past decades, we really haven't made as much progress as people would have thought then in terms of going to Mars. What do you make of the fact that it's going to take us 60 to 70 years to go from landing on the moon to maybe landing on Mars, assuming if it even happens in the right timeline? Um, it does not surprise me in the slightest. The, the moon is a lot easier. It's there. We can see it. We don't have to deal with an environment or an atmosphere to land. And, you know, when you are dealing, it was like, let's not kid ourselves. Apollo was just a part of the Cold War. So when it's a time of war, you get all the funding to make it happen really fast. We don't have a war and Mars is really far away and it's a lot more complicated to get there. Um, and we don't have the need to make it happen really fast. And that's sort of, I think, what the biggest thing that's missing for Mars and why I don't, like, I don't think it needs to happen immediately. I think it, it'll, it'll happen eventually, but it'll, I mean, we, we still need to figure out a lot of things before we can just up and go. Um, so when you, when you don't have wartime funding, you don't have the political need to make something happen immediately, and you have a target that's so much harder and further to get to, I don't, I don't find it horribly surprising that, the, you know, our timelines have gotten longer and longer. And I don't think it's no. a bad thing. I think it's, you know, I, I, I ultimately think that, you know, Apollo was so fast it gave us an unrealistic expectation of how fast things can happen in space when really we should be building like an, an orbital, you know, we have the ISS, but we, whether it's an, an, a different station or building onto the ISS if it gets funded beyond 2025, um, to where we can actually mount deep space missions from the station so we can build, build larger vehicles in orbit. Or, you know, this is, I mean, this is basically going back to what people like Werner von Braun wanted to do in the 50s. Um, and it needs to be something that, is, that has that longevity and that staying power as opposed to let's build this one thing to do this one thing and then we'll build something totally different for another thing. Like, it's, it's got to be a lasting thing and that's hard that's hard especially when you're dealing with uh you know different every president has a different administrator and goals keep changing and we we think that nasa is you know a civilian peaceful agency and it absolutely is but it is still very driven by politics yeah sure. some people think we should have a, a moon sort of an interim step um there's that and then Elon Musk yeah. says we can get there, and he can get there in like under ten years, which I'm pretty skeptical about. I, mean, I don't know what you think of that. But. <laughs> yeah, I, 
Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, maybe maybe the moon base, you know, I just mentioned the, like, orbital wave station to build things. Maybe the better option is doing it on the moon. I, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, there, there needs to be, like, sequential steps. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas, but timelines in space are, no, like, notoriously split behind. So, yeah. 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 So before we get to a few miscellaneous questions, um, as we go forward, what are your predictions for exploration and settlement on Mars and beyond? And if you could go on a trip to Mars, but it's one way, would you take it? <laughs> I would not do the one way to Mars. I don't know. I don't get the people who are willing to do it. And I've met a few of them and they honestly have, have said things like, well, you know, if I'm really lonely, I can just FaceTime people. I'm like, there's no <laughs> internet on Mars. There's a seven minute light time delay. It's like, I feel like the people who are like, sign me up totally understand that it's like it's not like living in a cave it's like it's like being completely isolated unto yourself I just I can't imagine I can't fathom it no um I miss my cat too much um and like you know humans and life on earth um I think I mean I think eventually it'll go I would be like personally I would really like to see it done as an international cooperative mission because I don't I just anything this big like should really be done for the sake of humanity not for the sake of a nation proving dominance but who knows um i think like i'd love to see it done as something that that is measured and is scientific and is done for for the sake of understanding things and, and expanding humanity not for ego and um make something that lasts that isn't a crash program to just like get humans on mars for the sake of getting humans on mars like, that doesn't do right. anything long-term. Um, but, you know, I'm not the one with the money and the connection to make that decision, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> so is there a particular sci-fi series that you think the space tra- the way space travel is depicted is the most exciting to you or one that you look to the most, whether that's Star Trek or something else? I am not a big sci-fi fan, (laughs) which surprises a lot of people. Um, I always, yeah, I always say that real space is better than fake space. So I'm trying to think if there's anything that I've, I've watched a few times that even comes close to sci-fi. And I don't think there is. Oh, fake space is a lot easier to get to than real space. That's the problem. Yeah. It's like, it's, like I can do I can do some sci-fi, but when it I don't know I've just it's just never been something that really appeals to me I don't know. No. Hmm. So you've appeared on some different <laughs> science programs uh, from hosting D News Online to being featured in a lot of episodes of NASA's Unexplained Files and hosting your own yeah. YouTube channel. Uh, what's your experience been like with all of this? Uh, interesting. It's always interesting to see like how different people like different outlets will tell a different, tell the same story. Like you'll, you'll, everyone wants to know about, you know, this and that from Apollo 11 or whatever. And depending if you're, you know, if you're doing it for web versus broadcast for major network for doc stories, like everyone wants something different out of the same story. And for, for me, because like vintage space, my channel is the one thing that like is my little baby on the internet and I get to control it. Um, I find it really interesting how much people are only interested in the superficial story sometimes, which I, I get if you're doing it for mass market. Everybody doesn't need to know the serial number of the oxygen tank that exploded on Apollo 13. 
which I'm sure somebody out there is grumbling at me using the word exploded, ruptured. <laughs> but anyways, um, so I, I find it really interesting to kind of do all these things and see the different ways people approach uh, science education and science storytelling. Um, and then I can, I can take it back to my, my own and, and fill in the gaps that I think need to be filled for the sake of having a, a fully explored version of the story on the Internet that people can access. Right. The, yeah. the first place I saw you commentating was on, shall we say, a bit of a controversial documentary with aliens on the moon. Uh, what do you make yeah, of some of those more fringe? Fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some of those more fringe theories like aliens operating a base in the moon and the fact that even some astronauts like Edgar Mitchell have lent credence and sort of suggestion. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that, that doc was, was the very interesting lesson in, oh, right, whatever I say can be edited so that I say something different. (laughs) Um, But it was fun. Um, It was a super fun interview. But, um, you know, I think it's, I think it is interesting how many people, we like, we want to believe in aliens so badly because it would give us a reason for exploring space and make us our existence on earth make more sense. I mean, there's, there's something so appealing about it. Um, and it's interesting that everyone's experience with it is so personal. I don't know. I, I find it a very interesting topic and not something like, well, personally, I don't think that there are aliens out there like watching us waiting to wage war. I think there's probably bacteria out there somewhere, but you know, the odds of us see, find, finding the right signature of life on a planet at the time in that life development on that planet to where it can signal us because it magically has the same technology or technology that is uh, cohesive with ours. But also because when we use a telescope, we are looking further into space, looking further back in time to find that planet at the right time. It's like, I feel like it's slim. Like it's it's probably out there somewhere. Like we can't be the only thing, but the odds of us finding it are are difficult. I'd love to find it. It'd be super cool, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard, you know, when someone comes back from space and says they had an experience or they, they feel a, a strong leaning towards something. It's hard to say, well, you're wrong because it's your personal experience. And I don't know what exactly happened, whether you heard something or saw something or felt something um, mm-hmm. that, you know, I, and I, I don't mean a physical thing. I mean, like you, you have this, like, you know, pilots have, I've, I've read about pilots uh, breaking the sound barrier in the 50s and 60s a lot that feel like, you know, even if they're not religious, they have this, this moment of feeling connected to something bigger as they hit that supersonic barrier. Um, no. You know, if it's something kind of metaphysical like that, that's, that's also intangible, like it could be that you had an experience like that and your interpretation is that it's life beyond earth. And that's, you know, it's, it's very personal and it's, isn't wrong. It's, um, but it's personal on that at that point. I think. Yeah. Uh, with Apollo Eleven, there's an infamous was it two Some people think they're talking about something or watching them or whatnot. What have you heard about that? I've heard this story. I have no idea where this story originated because, like, <laughs> I don't. It's one of those things where, like, I mean, I've I've read the Apollo Eleven transcripts. There's there's multiple. There's you know one air ground. There's within the spacecraft and there's. You know, I've looked through all this stuff, and I have never seen any, like, reliable mention of aliens anywhere. So I just, I don't yeah. know. I don't know where this story came from. But I feel like, 
somebody, I mean, if someone can put something on the internet and it can just gain traction like wildfire and go everywhere. So who knows? No, that never happens. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, I know you were in Australia two years ago for National Science Week, and I heard you're going back next month. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm going back. I, um, I'm still figuring out all the details and booking everything. But once it's once I have it all worked out, I will be putting the schedule up on my website. Um, I'm I'm doing I think four cities this time. Um, I've been I'm going out for the uh, the Byron Bay Astronomy Festival and decided well, might as well extend the ticket and tour Australia again because I don't get to go out there ever. Um, so I'm doing that. Uh, Brisbane, then uh, I've got a few talks in Sydney and a couple events in Melbourne. Um, and uh, yeah, then I'm going to uh, New Zealand without working for a few days at the end to uh, to work on some other stuff myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. I'm really excited to to get back out there and, and do some more events and, and meet more space people in the other hemisphere. It's always it's always so fun to meet meet people space people in different countries because their experience of it is so different. Um, I gave a, I gave a talk to a bunch of grade schoolers in Hobart last time I was there and realized these are kids who have never learned what the cold war is because when you're a nine year old in Australia, you don't care about (laughs) 1960s American politics. I'm like, Oh, how do I explain Apollo? (laughs) That weird moment of like, I have to shift the lens through which I discuss all this stuff because I can't take, I can't just assume that you have this background knowledge like I can when I give talks in America. Um, it's, it's super fun and super interesting and yeah, it's fun. I like it. <laughs> but I'm yeah, excited to no, go back. Australia is just like such a beautiful country too. And being from Canada, it feels very much like home to me. Yeah. Minus the uh, killer snakes and spiders, but I guess there's similarities. Yeah, I'm a little bit, I'm yeah. a little bit terrified of everything outside of a city in Australia. Like the idea of going out. Uh, yeah, I've, I've like had yeah. this vague fantasy of uh, getting out to Ayers Rock. Um, I'm way too afraid to drive though because I will accidentally drive on the wrong side of the road and get killed, and <laughs> I don't really want to have to come face to face with a spider the size of me. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but if you get onto the outback, there's probably almost no light pollution, so that would be nice for star watching. Yeah, yeah, I, I am getting out to the parks observatory out there, and I'm I'm super excited to see. You know, it is it's still it's a, it's a, there's a small town there, but it's not a major city, and it's supposed to be just beautiful clear skies, and it's yeah, it's super interesting to see. I mean, you know, I, I last time I was there, I got to, out to Honeysuckle Creek. It's a the tracking station outside Canberra into Bimbilla, which is where the first pictures from the moon came down. And it's hmm. just, it's yeah, outside Canberra. And I got to go there. And it's just like, yeah, you kind of forget that Australia has actually played a significant role in America's space exploration because it's the place where we go when we can't see things in space from America. <laughs> <laughs> kind of forgotten. So yeah. you've uh, published a few books as well. Do you want to tell us a bit about those and what inspired them? Well, I've only done the one for now, um, but I, I, I'm working on the second, but I, I can't talk about it yet. Um, so no, all I'm saying is I'm working on the second. Um, but the first, my first book is, I describe it as a prehistory of spaceflight. So it's looking at how NASA came to be. So the, the rocketry development, the space planes, the astronaut training or pilot training, the bureaucracy, everything that kind of was developing in the United States in the 1940s and 50s that then were brought together under the umbrella of this new National Aeronautics and Space Administration 
by Eisenhower in 1958. So it's, it's basically, I kind of wanted to dispel this myth that like, uh, like NASA was created one day and then in nine years went to the moon. Cause right. Everyone always says, well, if we could get to the moon in nine years, why aren't we on Mars yet? Well, it wasn't like zero to the moon in nine years. It was actually 30 years of development and understanding the technology before taking that on. So I wanted to like, show the roots of the space agency to give people an appreciation for how how much was already being done and came into nasa as it came into being sure oh well, i should say there's uh, a name of it yeah. even it's called breaking the chains of gravity <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh, you said yeah, something i wasn't sure with the name <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I should probably never forget to say the title of my own book. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, probably not the best way to pitch it if you forget that. No. No. <laughs> well, um, it was great talking to you about all this, and uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, I'm very glad we finally got this worked out. Thanks so much for having yeah, me. No, no, me too. And uh, all right, well. Take care and uh, talk to you. Yeah, cheers. Great. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. So that was Amy Shira Title. Uh, we went through a lot of interesting space history and looking forward to the future as well. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, we'll actually be back again tomorrow with another show. We don't usually do them that often, and I might lose my mind a little bit preparing, but we'll be back with another great historian. William C. Davis will be on the show then. Uh, we'll be talking about the Texas Revolution and the American Civil War. Uh, so that should be a good one, and uh, hope you can join us for that. Once again, this has been A.J. Bruno for the A.J. Bruno Show, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks.